Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get the latest on mask policies and mandates in Colorado school districts. Plus, we learn how a team of Northern Colorado home builders is using metal shipping containers to create affordable houses. So you can see this is marked out for a queen bed. You can fit a queen bed in here? You can fit a king bed, technically. Oh my gosh, it feels roomier than I thought. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. The COVID-19 situation is very fluid across the state. We have the Delta variant driving up cases and hospitalizations. At the same time, it also appears more people are deciding to get vaccinated. For kids about to head back into the classroom, whether or not they'll have to wear masks is not cut and dried. School districts are taking different approaches, although this week the state's largest district, Denver Public Schools, announced a mask mandate that requires students, staff, and visitors to wear a mask regardless of their vaccination status. For more on what's happening as students prepare to go back to school, we're joined by Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. So throughout the summer, we heard from many school district officials who are in sort of a wait and see mode. What would the COVID situation be like and what would health officials recommend? Now we have a much better picture of those things and school districts are starting to come out with their guidance. Can you give us an idea of the range of approaches that we're seeing across the state? Absolutely. We're really seeing Colorado's uh, system of local control in play here where you have districts like Denver Public Schools or West Minster Public Schools that are requiring masks for everyone, regardless of vaccination status. And then you have districts, um, the Greeley-Evans district, for example, masks are not required for anyone. They are strongly recommended for people who are unvaccinated. And that's an approach that we're seeing, frankly, in a lot of Colorado districts where they're moving to make masks optional, but using language like strongly encouraged or strongly recommended for people who are unvaccinated. And then we're also seeing some districts, um, for example, Adams 12, a suburban Denver district, says masks are required for all staff, but optional for all students. And so we're seeing some sort of different approaches around the state. Well, clearly schools have been around this block at least a time before. Um, What have we generally learned about either COVID spread at schools or the impact on children that we didn't know this time last year? You know, we have a whole school year under our belts At the same time, that was a school year with some fairly consistent mitigation practices in place. Most schools had masks for most students. There were some schools where it was optional for elementary students. Most schools had some reduced class size, and most schools were bound by uh, quarantine requirements. So when someone tested positive, that would then trigger a situation where other folks had to stay home until a certain amount of time had passed to ensure that they, to see if they had perhaps also contracted COVID. And these quarantine procedures were really disruptive to last school year. At the same time, um, a lot of public health authorities felt that those were one of the reasons that we didn't see really widespread school outbreaks. There certainly were some school outbreaks, 
but we didn't see the level of spread in schools that I think some people had feared. You know, going into the school year, I think a lot of school administrators feel more confidence that they can run school safely and they're hopeful that they'll see less disruption from COVID. At the same time, we're actually leaving behind a lot of the mitigation strategies that we used last year. And so that's, I think, the unknown of will we continue to see relatively limited spread? Will we continue to see relatively contained outbreaks when outbreaks do occur, given that the entire population under 12 and about half of the population of older students is unvaccinated and many schools are moving to mask optional policies. We've also seen the state really roll back their expectations in terms of quarantine. And I think we'll see a lot fewer quarantines, which I think most people are, most school administrators are welcoming, but we'll have to see, you know, then what is the impact of that. Well, let's talk about vaccine requirements. Uh, in the city of Denver earlier this week, Mayor Michael Hancock announced that city employees would be required to get the vaccine. That includes hospital workers as well as teachers and staff at places like Denver Public Schools. What can you tell us about this so far? This was it was really interesting that Mayor Hancock's order for certain employees to be vaccinated extends um, to Denver Public Schools. It extends to private schools. It extends even to child care providers. This was unusual in that we didn't really see the city get involved to that degree last year. And I think it reflects the seriousness with which the city is is taking the current increase in cases. The health director uh, for the city and county of Denver said, we're not going to mask our way out of this. We really need more vaccination. And I think they identified these school settings and child care settings where you do have um, you know, interaction between adult staff who are eligible for vaccination and young kids who are not eligible for vaccination. And I think it's really a push to ensure that we can really minimize the impact of COVID on this school year and on on the provision of childcare, which is such a critical service. We have not seen a lot of school districts go this route. And that's something that we're going to be watching to see if any school districts do take up their own vaccine mandates. It's notable that this was coming from the city and not from the school district. School starts for many K-12 students next week. Parents who are taking in this guidance and may be feeling anxious or confused, uh, what advice do you have for them? In talking to parents, we have found that there are folks who feel very strongly that they don't want their child to wear a mask, that they feel like the mask is impeding their child's ability to have a form of emotional connections, to communicate with their peers and with teachers. And then we also have talked to parents who feel really strongly that they want to see masking continue in school. You know, I'm not a medical professional, but what I can say is that um, there is a very widespread consensus among public health officials and medical professionals that masking does reduce the transmission of COVID and that it is a really important step that we can take to keep people safe in indoor settings. The other thing that public health professionals have called out in this most recent increase of cases is states with higher rates of adult vaccination have much lower rates of children with COVID and states where fewer adults are vaccinated have more children with COVID. So that's another thing that we can really do to protect our kids is have the adults in their lives be vaccinated. Erica Meltzer is Bureau Chief for Chalkbeat Colorado. You'll find links to their reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Erica, thanks as always for talking with us. Thanks for having me.
There is not enough housing to meet demand throughout much of Colorado, and what is available is often too expensive for many. Big solutions like developing neighborhoods or apartment buildings can take years to realize. So as KUNC's Matt Bloom reports, some local builders and governments are turning to a smaller-scale solution. About a mile off Interstate 25, just east of Fort Collins, there's a big dirt lot full of metal shipping containers. The kind used to move things like cars, electronics, and food on cargo ships. The long, empty boxes aren't heading across the ocean anytime soon. Instead, a small crew is transforming them into one-bedroom homes that are designed to be built on someone's property and rented out. This is the bedroom of the container. Danny Crisafuli is vice president of the company Pivot Structures, which formed last year. He's giving me a tour inside one of their homes in progress. So you can see this is marked out for a queen bed. You can fit a queen bed in here? You could fit a king bed, technically. In oh my gosh, bodies. it feels roomier than I thought. The space is about 900 square feet, big enough to hold a kitchen, full bathroom, and a living room with a couch. This type of building is called an accessory dwelling unit, or ADU. They also go by other nicknames like granny flats and backyard cottages. Chris Foley, a local realtor turned builder, thinks this can help with the state's housing shortage. There is a movement happening. There is a recognition that we have a housing crisis. It's it's here, right? We we do not have enough supply for uh, our population right now, and that is continuing to drive prices up. And that's not a sustainable thing. Um, so no, are we going to solve all of those problems? No, but we can solve one of those problems. We can create affordable units that can be plop down in a backyard very quickly. But one big hurdle, at least in northern Colorado, is that most local governments are really picky about where ADUs can go. Sue Beck-Fergus is a housing manager with the city of Fort Collins. They are allowed in certain parts of the city today, but they are not allowed all over today. Current zoning laws make building them impossible for most homeowners and strict building codes are also a barrier. But that's about to change because of a strategic housing plan the city adopted earlier this year. It calls for ADUs in all zoning types and reducing the fees the city charges to build them. But the bottom line is, I think that the philosophy is changing in Northern Colorado to realize accessory dwelling units can be beneficial to our ability to give options to our residents that they're asking for. It's not just Fort Collins. Loveland, Greeley, Windsor, and other local governments are all looking at loosening their rules within the next few years. Evelyn Lim says states that have loosened their rules, like California and Oregon, have seen building numbers jump. Absolutely. I mean, you're adding to the housing stock for sure. Um, now, I think that, is it the panacea? Probably not. Lim is a housing researcher with the Common Sense Institute, a nonpartisan think tank based in Denver. She says the level of impact that ADUs can have can vary from community to community. Some municipalities say, you know, these, these properties have to be owner-occupied or um, put other additional, you know, they have to have more parking, they have to have follow all the setbacks, and then they have to be a certain size. And so what you're really seeing is, you know, people say they're friendly, but they really haven't been doing kind of the work to allow and actually um, allow these ADUs to be to be uh, built. Above all, cost could be the main factor that holds back homeowners. Saw cuts like butter. It really does. Back at the Pivot Structures build site, crew members are slicing a window into the side of a soon-to-be ADU. Each unit sells for about $80,000. 
That might sound like a lot, but it's much less than building a traditional home or even the cost to build one unit in an apartment building, which can run upwards of $200,000. We have a housing crisis on our hands, right? But there's solutions to that. Danny Crisofulli is closely watching what local governments do and hopes they offer incentives that help bring down the cost even more. But those solutions aren't going to solve themselves. It's going to be us um, figuring out how to solve those problems with our municipalities. He's already sold his first unit, and once local restrictions loosen, he thinks the market will boom. The company has already leased out a larger manufacturing space in the nearby town of Severance, and they expect to ramp up production this fall. Matt Bloom, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Blockchain technology has been described as a decentralized digital ledger, a list of transactions that can be seen by anyone with an internet connection that cannot be altered or faked. That's what makes it secure enough for cryptocurrency platforms like Bitcoin or Ethereum. That's also what makes it the basis for a new form of selling art, the NFT or non-fungible token. KUNC's Ray Solomon recently met up with a group in Denver that's dedicated to teaching children, especially children of color, how to create their own NFTs. They say it's a path to future financial empowerment for their community. Here's Ray with that story. There's a small group of kids at a table. Colored pencils are scattered in front of them. Crayons, too. And markers, especially markers. This windowless, subterranean gallery space is set up for an art class. You draw whatever's on your mind. Use as many colors as Robert Gray is teaching. He's also the owner of IRL Gallery. It's the first NFT gallery here in Colorado, and it's powered all by cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. So what does it mean to have an NFT gallery if it's all digital? It means to bring this digital world in real life to people. They think of NFTs and digital assets as something that you can only experience on your phone or digitally on a computer. Um, but it allows us to teach them about this new way of art in this digital world. In this art class, in this gallery, paper and pencils are only the beginning. So I'm going to teach y'all a little bit about NFTs and the benefits of it. NFT stands for non-fungible token, although let's face it, that doesn't really help. The short of it is that NFTs are digital creations put on a blockchain. Each one is unique with a digital fingerprint that can't be faked. It's as if the provenance of a painting was stapled onto the back of a canvas. Forever. NFTs have been in the news a lot recently for the eye-popping prices some of them have fetched, but a lot of adults still have a hard time wrapping their heads around the idea. And it's all transparent, it's all digital, it's a digital ledger open to everyone. Looking around the table, these kids are really young. The youngest, just four years old. But Gray and his partners are pretty sure that they get it. Yeah, exactly what it is. What's another game you like to play? Tokoboka. Um, so the things you're spending real money, you take your parents' money, and then you go buy Tokoboka bucks or Roblox bucks. You take that, and then you, you spend real money on those things. Those are called digital assets. What we're creating today are also digital assets. You know what an asset is? No. An asset is something that makes you money. So what's a digital asset? That's Brandon Jackson, who brought his two daughters to the class. He wants them to lean into their creativity, but even more so, he wants them to understand the technology that can turn a profit from that creative impulse. Because creativity will always be there, but I think monetizing that creativity is more important now. The way he sees it, NFTs, the whole world of blockchain transactions, give creative people the power to control their own work and all the value it generates. 
in perpetuity. His kids probably won't make it big in the NFT art world, at least not just yet. But that's almost beside the point. He's working on a bigger strategy. We have art and all the other stuff around it, but we really want to make like economic chess moves as well. So that's where if we can empower our community with cryptocurrency and then the education behind it and tie it all into art and creativity, that's a real chess move. I want to make sure to see how I can share that with students. Jay Gardner is an entrepreneur, educator, and community organizer. Especially students of color, um, just because I felt that this crypto world that was being unleashed on us uh, was moving at a rapid pace, and uh, students uh, just were kind of getting left behind. This kid's NFT class started out as his brainchild. The idea came when he read about a company that made a huge amount of money selling digital sneakers. That's right, we're talking virtual shoes for virtual feet. And that's when it really started hitting me that A, I was behind the curve. There needs to be a way for us not to get left behind. People of color always find out too late about the game. So Jay and his team developed a curriculum for kids as young as six that hinges on making traditional, that is physical, artwork. Kind of like what these kids are doing here today. The technology piece gets sprinkled in slowly in small, digestible portions. Over the course of the of program, we're making sure to help them digitize and tokenize that traditional artwork so it can be sold on NFT marketplaces like OpenSea, and they can start to understand how cryptocurrency works. In just a few weeks, this first batch of kid-powered NFTs will be available on the marketplace. Whether or not they bring in the big bucks, that's another matter. Ray Solomon, KUNC. In early June, Westminster police put out a press release asking the public to help them find a man that reportedly stole money from a garage sale and dragged a woman with his pickup truck when she tried to get it back. Shortly after, they arrested Armando Valdez Gonzalez and released his name. Media outlets then reported the story. But in the days after the arrest, detectives collected evidence that told a different story. It showed Gonzalez had not committed any crime or wrongdoing, and the district attorney's office did not charge him. Liam Adams, a reporter for Colorado Community Media, has been following the case. Colorado Edition's Tess Novotny recently spoke with him about how the story fits into greater issues with how police and media report alleged crimes. He started by describing what really happened from information he obtained from a 67-page police report. This is the story that kind of came together. Mr. Valdez Gonzalez, he was at the garage sale because he makes extra money from buying garage sale items and reselling them. And he had showed up to the garage sale at around... 9 a.m. that morning, and he was talking to the elderly woman about items for sale. When the woman said she, she thought that she realized he had her bag, and Mr. Valdez Gonzalez said that, she, that he did not, and she told him that he stole it, and he kept insisting he didn't. Mr. Valdez Gonzalez walked back to his truck, and the couple and a neighbor followed him. The woman grabbed his arm and scratched him, and then he got into his truck and the elderly one put her hand in the truck and Valdez Gonzalez uh, drove away. And that woman was briefly dragged and she was thrown, thrown to the ground and she hit her head and was bleeding and knocked unconscious. Soon after leaving the scene at 9.27 a.m., Mr. Valdez Gonzalez calls police dispatch to report that a woman had been aggressive towards him 
and that he wanted to go back with a police officer. The dispatcher continued to ask for a precise address, but because he didn't have one, the dispatcher said that police could not send an officer. It was soon after that when that first press release went out that had the photo of Mr. Valdez Gonzalez's truck. So then the next morning, Mr. Valdez Gonzalez calls the police department because he saw his truck on the news and he wanted to share his perspective of events. So he has a phone call with a few police officers and he said a woman was trying to steal his bag and that several people attacked him at the garage sale. In response, the officers on the phone told him they were willing to take a report, but they need him to come in to document his injuries. And that's when they arrested him and issued the second press release that included his name. Then in the sort of three days after the arrest, detectives followed up and collected additional evidence that would ultimately find him innocent. One of those pieces of evidence, but it was not the only one, was that the elderly couple had found the bag that they thought Mr. Valdez Gonzalez stole. They found that in their living room. After Mr. Valdez Gonzalez was arrested and he spent a night in the Adams County Jail, during his overnight stay, his cellmate, according to Mr. Valdez's attorney, cellmate tried to to hang himself. So even though he was not charged, ultimately... How do you think that he's still being affected by all this today, by, by having to witness his cellmate having a suicide attempt and by having to, to pay for all of these court fees? He's in debt for $11,000, and that includes a $4,000 bond, almost 5000 to his current attorney, uh, Terry O'Malley, and then about 2000 to another lawyer. So what Mr. O'Malley told me is that he will be asking this elderly couple to compensate Mr. Valdez Gonzalez in full. If the couple does not agree to that, then Mr. Valdez Gonzalez may sue. So that's sort of the financial piece and then the emotional toll. I haven't spoken with Mr. Valdez Gonzalez directly, but in the police reports, there were notes of interactions between detective and Mr. Valdez Gonzalez's wife and she described sort of the emotional toll of witnessing that suicide attempt in jail. I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about how common situations like what happened to Gonzalez are. I know that it can be typical for media and police to like release information about an alleged crime or alleged criminal before somebody has been convicted for it. How do police and media typically release information about crimes and alleged crimes? It can vary by the police department. I would say that these kinds of news releases from Westminster Police are not uncommon. And a lot of times, media outlets will copy-paste that, that press release with little follow-up, as we saw in this you know, instance. And in fact, when the DA's office came out with the press release kind of clearing Mr. Valdez Gonzalez's name, a lot of media outlets took down their initial stories about this incident. You know, that said, there is this sort of growing consciousness around how to engage with police news releases. And a lot of that can be kind of captured up in what's being called the right to be forgotten movement in which the subject of a story who was named in a news story as a suspect in a crime 
will request from the media outlet to have their name removed because their name being in that news story would, you know, hinder job or housing prospects, for example. As kind of part of that, you know, um, this right to be forgotten movement, a lot of um, media outlets are not just thinking retroactively, but also proactively. So how do we proceed with covering this kind of stuff? More more news outlets are, are adopting this is to say, hey, we're not going to write, you know, a news story based off of this police news release unless we're going to follow it up to the point of resolution when it goes through court and finishes there. I'm also curious, has reporting on this story, has this made you reconsider any of your own, like reporting ethics or practices? Yeah, absolutely. I think... I know personally as a reporter, just to, you know, immediately when I see a police news release to be, I think, just off the bat, cautious, and to have, you know, conversation with my editor about how we proceed with covering it. Because, you know, I mean, this this doing this story really showed me potential damage that can come with basically, you know, sort of broadcasting news release that was not reflective of the true story. Liam Adams is a reporter for Colorado Community Media. Liam, thank you for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we meet an Olympic gymnast from Fort Collins and hear about his journey to this year's games. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.